Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. This is the word of the Lord. And I wonder if any of these things ring familiar about our culture. The persistent experience of pain and suffering. How about widespread economic hardship that provokes financial fear and uncertainty? Or how about harsh and cutting words fired off in sinful anger? Any of these things ring familiar? How about this? Social division based on social class. Faith and character compromised in the pursuit of personal pleasure and self-fulfillment. Preoccupation with wealth and comfort at the expense of generosity and sacrifice. Do any of those things ring familiar? Any of those things feel like, oh yeah, that, that is certainly our culture. Well, these descriptions are actually not taken from our current culture, but rather describe the situation and context we find within the New Testament book of James. And so this morning, we are beginning a new series in the book of James that will take us through the month of June. And so what I want to do this morning, as a way to really prepare our hearts for all that God has for us in this series, I want to give us an overview of the book as well as highlight the central sort of points of the entire book, as well as some important themes. And in doing so, I want us to humbly posture ourselves before the Lord concerning these things so that as we go through this book, we may receive all that the Lord has for us. So let's start with probably one of the most important questions. Anytime you are reading something from a person, you start with this, well, who is this person? Well, why should I listen to this man named James? James identifies himself in verse 1 as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great. Great to know. But beyond that, who is James? Well, tradition tells us, and with good reason, that the James who penned this letter is not James the brother of John, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, but rather James the very brother of Jesus, a son of Joseph and Mary. Now, he doesn't identify himself as the the brother of our Lord in this letter. But as I said, tradition and history have good reason to believe that this is the man who penned this letter. Now, what do we know about James from the New Testament? Not a lot, but we do know that before, well, while Jesus was on the earth and during his ministry, James actually did not believe in his brother. Now, you can imagine, like, the conversations that must have entailed and, and just the experience of that, thinking, my older brother is traveling around claiming to be the son of God, teaching these various things with power and authority. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. And yet there's this hardness of heart James has towards Jesus. Fascinating to to consider what was going on in the heart of James that would cause him to resist believing in his brother. But what we also find out in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 is that after Jesus was resurrected, he actually appeared to his brother. Now, I, I'm, 
Man, if, if you could be a fly on a wall of any conversation, I'm sure there are lots of them that you would love to listen to, but, but this moment, just imagine this moment. James, who resisted and stiff-armed his brother while he was on, walking on the earth, watching his ministry but would not follow Jesus. So, so there's sort of this like hardness and conflict there, but then having to watch your brother be brutally executed and strung up on a Roman cross, I mean, that's going to hurt no matter what. And so watching your brother die, and so all of the turmoil, all of the angst, all of the questions going on here, and then here comes Jesus, full of grace, appearing to his brother who had stiff-armed him in life and appearing to him as the resurrected Lord, inviting his, James, his brother, to follow me. And you just imagine the grace in that conversation. And what we're led to believe is that from that experience, James puts his faith in his brother. And what we also learn from the book of Acts is that James becomes one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, transformed by the resurrection of Jesus, and he becomes the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem and a powerful leader in the early church. That's what an encounter with the resurrected Jesus will do. And so James becomes a leader, he becomes a pastor. Verse 1 also tells us that James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, this phrase, 12 tribes, alludes to the 12 tribes of Israel. This was a a common sort of catch-all for talking about the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this, this phrase is used to refer to the entirety of church, both Jew and Gentile, in some places in the New Testament. But here, because of when James was writing and who he was writing to, it is most likely that he is writing to a specifically a group of Jewish Christians. And this term dispersion was a first century term used to describe those Jews who lived outside of Palestine. So James is more than likely writing to Jewish Christians who are living probably in Syria or Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. Now the letter itself, it is a fascinating bit of New Testament because the language in the style of James, more than any other New Testament letter, reflect the style and teaching of Jesus. James was probably the first book written in the New Testament, written sometime between 40 and 50 AD. So before the Gospels were written, before Peter or John penned their letters, before the Apostle Paul wrote all of his letters, James writes this letter and it circulates among the early church. And what we see, though James wrote before the Gospels were penned, if you do a comparison of the language and the style and the theological categories that Jesus used, you see incredible parallel to how James himself writes. So what this means is two things. One, James was, like Jesus, incredibly Jewish in how he taught, in his style, but James is also incredibly Jesus-like in his style and his language. And another thing that you will notice is when you read James, he writes using very punchy language, very punchy style. He is very simple, clear, and practical. Here's an example from James 1, 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Simple, direct, practical. Listen more than you talk. He's also very blunt and direct. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
So whoever wants to be friend, the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Now, like I know as a pastor, like I love you and I ha- sometimes have to speak strongly, but if I were to say to you, you adulterous person, how would you, how would you receive that? <laughs> James uses very blunt and direct language. He also uses vivid imagery, images and metaphors to illustrate his points. Consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. Vivid images and metaphors to illustrate his points. James is punchy, he's practical, he's clear. There's very few statements in the book of James where you go, what does he mean by that? It's very different reading James than it is reading Hebrews or Romans or even 1 Corinthians. Those of you that do Bible reading plans, you love when you're in James because it is easy to get through. It's easy to understand. This is why the book of James has been so uh, common and so uh, popular among Christians throughout the centuries. For, for those of you who are literary nerds, you might, you might put it this way. James is like the Ernest Hemingway of the New Testament. Like five of you got that reference. So let me try again. If the Apostle Paul is like Facebook, James is like Twitter. Better? <laughs> There's something else that you're going to notice when you, when you read James is that it seems at times like he jumps from topic to topic to topic without really any rhyme or reason. Now, jumping from topic to topic to topic is not unusual for the New Testament, but James doesn't seem to use much transition. It just kind of seems like he goes from one thing to the next to the next without any rhyme or reason. So just even in the first two and a half chapters of of the book of James, we're going to see he goes from talking about trials to addressing the rich to instructing, now, be slow to speak and quick to listen to being doers of the word to not showing favoritism and caring for the, the, the less unfortunate and then the use of our tongues. And he just kind of weaves in and out, back and forth, back and forth, without much transition. And so the, reason, the, the, the style of James and, and kind of how he moves from topic to topic has led some to believe that James is sort of like the Proverbs of the New Testament, that he writes sort of like the, book, the style of the book of Proverbs, where he just kind of stacks teaching upon teaching, wise saying upon wise saying, without any really connective sort of thought. But if we see... One, the context behind what James is addressing, as well as the style of his letter, we see that that's probably not the best way to understand the book of James as just sort of a bunch of proverbs and wise sayings. And so while we don't know the specific details on all of what's happening with James's audience, scholars and historians agree that it is likely James was writing, as I said, to a group of Jewish Christians who are outside of Palestine. And the reason that they are outside of Palestine is because they have fled the persecution that took place in Jerusalem, as we read in Acts 8 and 11. And so they had fled the region, fled the area, and they were spread out. They were also probably facing some sort of widespread economic hardship that had kind of permeated that part of the world due to famine. And so taken between these two things, here is sort of the underlying reality facing these Jewish Christians. They were suffering. They were facing hardship. Life was difficult. And you know what happens when life is difficult? Man, it messes with you. It really begins to mess with you. 
Pain messes with you. Pain disorients you. Pain causes you to fear and despair. Causes you to doubt and even start to accuse God. It causes you to compromise your faith in order to to find a sense of uh, security and comfort. It, It can cause us to use our tongue in very angry and ugly ways. When there's pain and hardship economically, those who have resources and those who don't can oftentimes find themselves at odds with one another. And so if we, if we make sense of kind of all the things that James is talking about, if you consider, well, these people are suffering, then it makes absolute sense that all of these things are in play, all the topics that he talks about. Also, James's letter is what is called a literary letter, which is a little bit different than a personal letter. So the easiest way to think about this is the difference between a personal letter that someone you might write or someone might write you and, and something like a pamphlet. So in a personal letter that is addressed to you specifically, the details in it are about specific things that are happening in your life. It's addressing details of actual events that are happening with a specificity that goes beyond just kind of general issues people face. This is how the Apostle Paul largely wrote. Now, now while there is plenty in Paul's letters that that can be applied broadly, He addressed specific churches facing specific situations, and he applied truth to those specific situations. James is different. His letter is different. His letter is more like a pamphlet, meaning it's addressed to specific people. It's addressed to churches and to Christians. But the instruction and wisdom that is given, in many ways, is more general, it's, face, it's, it's addressing things that you are going to face whoever you are, wherever you are. The instruction that he gives, while it is definitely practical and definitely relates to specific situations, it also comes packaged in a more general way. So, for example, enduring trial. Like, look, that's always going to be an issue, right? No matter who you are, where you are. Faithfulness and obedience to God and resisting the temptation to be faithful to the world. That, that matters no matter where you are and who you are. Treating those who are different, different than you, especially different social classes, rich and poor, and the, the battles that go on there, don't care who you are and where you are, that is going to be an issue. How you use your mouth is going to be an issue no matter who you are and where you are. Living in the hope of Jesus returning and the tension that we as Christians face and living in that as we await Christ's return, no matter who you are and where you are, Those are going to be issues. And so listen, why did the descriptions that I gave at the beginning of this this message sound so much like our time today and the culture today? Because those are issues that we are going to face. No matter the ebbs and flows of your specific life, no matter what is specifically happening in your circumstances, look, pain and suffering, economic uncertainties, anger, hatred, division, temptations to compromise faith and character, these are challenges we're always going to live with, we're always going to face. And so James, as a wise pastor who has members of his church that have been scattered throughout the, the, the world, he, he, he needs to pastor them from afar, and he knows kind of the general circumstances of their life, and so what does he do? It is likely that James compiled a number of homilies, which are just short sermons. And he put those together along with some other bits of wisdom and instruction, and he compiled them in a letter, and he sent them out to be dispersed among those Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine. And so James gave these Jewish Christians timeless and timely truths. 
And he does the same for us. And so if we boil down all the timeless and timely wisdom and instruction James gives to us, what's sort of the central idea of the book of James? It's this. Stand faithful to God, not the world. If you boil down all his instruction, all the things that he's going to talk about, all the, all the different areas that we're going to cover between now and June, it can be boiled down to this central argument, the central point, stand faithful to God, not the world. Amidst all the timeless challenges we face, amidst the pain and suffering and the economic uncertainties and the, the challenges of anger and hatred and division and the temptations to compromise our faith and our character, God's word through James declares to this to us, stand faithful to God, not the world. And so if this is sort of the central argument of the book of James, I want to, for our remaining time, just highlight three sort of core themes that James repeatedly returns to as a way to emphasize this point. So if you kind of think of the main point as a river, these three themes are kind of the tributaries that are flowing into this river. And so the first one here, the first theme, the first major theme is that trials are a grace. Trials are a grace. So let me ask this question. Like, how do you respond to hardship? Like when life gets hard, when it gets painful, when the pressure's on, how do you respond? Well, how do you respond internally? How do you respond mentally? How do you respond just with action? Now we saw in our series in Exodus over the past five weeks that as Israel was walking through the wilderness and they were experiencing trial and the pressure was on there, that they went to some pretty dark places. They, they faced challenge, and what did they do? They respond with doubt and despair. They respond with anger. They respond with actually accusing God of not being good. And looking at those things, we, we held up the example of Israel as a way to kind of shine a mirror on ourselves. As we, looked at, as, as we looked at Israel, we saw our own reflection in the mirror and saw, hey, we can respond to trial in the same exact way. And so if Exodus was an entryway kind of into that theme, if it brought us kind of into the entryway of enduring trial, James wants to bring us all the way into the house, have us sit down on the couch, and begin to reflect and really live inside of this truth that trials are a grace. Here's what he writes in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Listen, that trial you're facing, that hardship, that thing that's cutting to the core and seems like it is fracturing your life, consider it joy. Be joyful in the midst of that, James tells you. If, if that doesn't provoke in you, what? Huh? Then, then, then let, me, let me just repeat what James says. In that place where you find the most pain, be joyful. Is that your experience? Is that your response in the midst of trial? Joy. Not, not, not denying that it hurts, not denying that it is painful, but, but is there joy in the midst of that? What James says is shocking here. It's shocking. And how can he say that? How can he call us to, to consider it a joy whenever you experience various trials? Because he knows it's a grace. Here's what verses 3 and 4 say. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James reminds us God is up to something in our trials. 
He is up to something profound. He is strengthening us. He's building endurance. He's working to mature us, working to make us complete, lacking nothing. I mean, consider that. In your walk with the Lord, for those of you that follow Jesus, do you, want, do you not want the kind of maturity that says, I'm lacking nothing? Like a level of maturity that shows that you lack nothing in character. Would you not want that kind of maturity? I hope you would. Where does that come from? Friends, it only comes through trial. It only comes through trial. And in this way, trials are a grace to us because God is up to something. He is trying to work in our character something deep and profound. He's not trying to wreck and ruin us. He's seeking to mature us. But the only way that happens is through trial. And so as we work our way through the book of James, my prayer and my hope is is that we would stand faithful to God and not the world because we would, through God's word, through the book of James, we would come to embrace and be shaped by the truth that trials are a grace. Second, the second point, second main theme that runs through the book of James is this, true faith transforms. What does your life say you believe? Not what your mouth says. What does your life say? If someone were to examine your life and, and watch you for a week, a day, a week, a month, a year, what would they say this person believes? What would they suppose is the, at the core of your heart and what drives you, your deepest motivations, your deepest values? What, what would someone say is the thing that you most live for? You know, one of the biggest criticisms that is hurled at Christians is hypocrisy, Right? That Christians say they believe in Jesus, but the way they live their lives does not reflect how they actually believe. And that's a problem. And maybe some of you in this room that, that either don't profess faith or you're really struggling with faith, one of the reasons is, is because you've seen too many Christians say they believe in Jesus, but the way that they live their life does not reflect that profession. And it hurts. And it's a problem. Hey, Here's what you're going you're gonna to love. James agrees with you. James absolutely agrees with you that there is a major problem when we profess faith, but the way that we live our lives does not align with that profession of faith. Listen to how he puts it in chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, is James saying we are saved by our works? Or is he saying we are saved by our, work, our faith and our works? No. James is not saying works are the cause of our salvation. He is saying works are the result of our salvation. True saving faith is not saying I believe in Jesus with my mouth and then going and living however I want. True saving faith is genuine trust in Jesus such that your life is transformed to genuine obedience to Jesus. Faith, true faith, transforms our character. And as James will show us, true faith transforms how we engage trials, how we treat others, how we use our words, how we use our resources, what we most love and desire and give our lives to. 
Works are not the cause of our salvation, but they are the results of our salvation. And so do you have a faith that truly transforms? Do you have a faith that transforms? Now listen, it is true, it is absolutely true that the world likes to throw this accusation at Christians in a manipulative way. It seems like anytime Christians want to take a stand for biblical truth and that requires them having a backbone and pushing back against the culture, the world wants to go, you're hypocrites, you're mean, you're bigoted. Listen, don't fall for it. Don't be manipulated by the world. At the same time, at the same time, church, we better believe it is a problem, a deep problem, than when what we profess and how we live our lives are not incongruence. It is a deep problem problem when we say we believe Jesus, but what our hearts reveal, the sin and the anger and the pride and the selfishness and the the mistreatment and disregard of other people, what we give our time and our resources and our energies and our emotions to show faithfulness to the world rather than faithfulness to God. It is a problem. It does damage. And James brings strong confrontation, strong challenge, strong correction to us. Now, for some of us, the correction James is going to bring is going to be an exposure of a gap in maturity. Like, we have true saving faith, but we are wildly immature when it comes to spiritual things. And James is going to expose that. He's going to expose our spiritual immaturity. We all have it. We all, we all should get ready to be exposed in some ways. But, but for some of you, it's going to be a very wide gap that you've been playing at this Christian thing for a while and when James comes and says, hey, faith without works is dead, what it's going to expose in you is that the works of your life do not reflect a deep obedience to Christ. And so he's going to expose some of us. For others, James is going to cut even deeper. For some, you're going to find that while you profess faith, you actually don't possess faith. That you profess that you follow Jesus, but it is obvious from your life Jesus has never actually transformed you. It's, it's all lip service. And so listen, here's what I want from all of us, wherever we are on that spectrum. Like, I, I just want us to be humble before the word of God and just recognize the word of God will expose us and that's a grace to us, that's a good thing Because when we're exposed by the word of God, it's an invitation to be humble before the Lord and experience the power of Jesus in our lives. Jesus exposes us, his word exposes us, so that we can come to him, the one who is full of grace and truth and mercy, so we can be transformed. And our faith can be genuine, and our lives can be lived for his glory and the good of other people. And so wherever you find God exposing you through this sermon, don't resist it, don't hide, don't cover back up, don't run and pretend. Admit it, own it. Because on the other side of that, there's grace for you. We want the kind of faith that truly transforms us, do we not? The kind of faith that makes us like Jesus, the kind of faith that actually moves us to be obedient and stand faithful to God and not the world. And so friends, As we go through this book, as we go through God's word through the letter of James, may we stand faithful to God and not the world, and may we receive what the Lord would have for us so that our faith would be the kind of faith that transforms. Finally, the final theme and thread is the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Now, growing up, 
my mom worked for the post office, and so she delivered mail. And there was a, a time when, when I was younger when she had a route that she did on Saturdays. And so on Saturdays, this, this is what life for my brother and I was like. Get up on Saturday mornings, watch some cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons. Some of you remember that. It was just a, a great experience. You know, we just sit there and eat sugary food, not cereal, but, you know, sugary breakfast food and just watch cartoons. And then from there, we would kind of meander our way into just starting messing with each other and pranking each other, which usually resulted in one of us throwing the other's underwear in the tree in the front yard as high up as we could. And so our Saturday mornings were a blast. But there was always this moment when we recognized mom's going to be home in an hour and she gave us a list of chores to do. And some of you know where this is going. (laughs) And so that last hour was just we got to get all of our chores done. And so it was just a blitz to try to get everything done on the list that our mom gave us to do. My mom was a very loving and nurturing person, but boy, she had expectations. When she asked my brother and I to do something, we needed to do it. And so here's the point. Knowing that someone greater was coming affected our behavior. Knowing that my mom was coming home, someone greater, someone in authority was coming, it affected our behavior. Now, My brother and I were very immature in that. But the point stands. James draws on this point that when someone greater is coming, it affects our behavior. And he does so, one, to bring hope and one, to bring warning. Now, you think about that, like how trials affect us. Like trials are disorienting and they're painful. And and, and they they can cause our faith to weaken. And so in the midst of that, we can sort of get lost, like someone's in a storm. We just like lose perspective and we lose a sense of, of what is true and what is good and what is right. And so James seeks to bring much needed perspective to his audience by orienting them to something that is true. As he writes in chapter five, verses seven and eight, therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Yes, trials are difficult. Trials are painful. But take heart, James says, because the Lord's coming is near. Like endure like a farmer. Be patient. Stand faithful to God and not the world. Why? Because the Lord is coming The Lord is coming and he is going to renew all things. The Lord is coming and he is going to overthrow and defeat evil once and for all. The Lord is coming and sin and suffering will be done away with once and for all. Death will be swallowed up in victory. That faith that has been tested and tried, it will come forth like gold. Like in the midst of all the pain and the suffering that you and I face, the difficulties that we face walking this path in this broken world, there is hope and there is encouragement for us because Jesus is coming back. But there's also warning. At the beginning of chapter 5, James writes this, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasures in the last days. James is warning these ungodly rich people, your wealth is rotting away. Like your money, it's already corroding. It's already passing away. And that rotting, eroding treasures, they're gonna be a witness against you. What are they gonna declare? They're gonna declare, this is what you gave your life to. Empty, meaningless, 
worthless, corroding treasure. Stuff that does not stand on the last day when Jesus comes back. Look, for all the success, all the wealth, all the gain, all the power, all the pleasure, you can accumulate it all, everything that this world has to offer. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to be nothing more than moldy clothes in a rusty bucket. In the light of the glory of Jesus, when he returns, all of that is going to pass away. And so James warns, in light of the Lord's coming, what are you giving your life to? Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus is coming. And will you stand with him in the new creation or will you be cast aside in judgment with the worthless treasures of this world? There's hope in Jesus coming back for those who put their trust in him. But there is also warning. And so for you that are here this morning that do not trust in Christ, here's both the warning but also the good news. The warning that Jesus is coming back to judge the world and he will bring judgment to those who oppose him and do not follow him. He will put an end to evil and sin and suffering. And if you do not put your faith in him, you will be swept up in that judgment. But listen, Jesus holds out his grace. He holds out salvation if you will turn from your sin and follow him. Follow him as the one true Lord. But for those of us that do put our trust in Christ, the the call to stand faithful to God and not the world, the hope that we have in all of that, what strengthens us to do that is this truth, Jesus is coming back. And so as we go through this book, let us be encouraged by that truth. Let us be strengthened and take heart in that truth that the Lord is coming. And so friends, let me just say this in conclusion, that look, whether it's, the ongoing trials of just life and, and the pain that, that just happens, it, whether, whether it's economic hardship, whether it's, it's the divisions that we face, whether it's battles with sin and anger, whether, whether it's just that, that turmoil in your, your heart about your desires, wherever the, 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 the conflict is, wherever the struggle is, wherever the, the difficulty is, look, the effect of all of that is, man, our faith wears down, right? We get weak. We get weak. Our faith starts to wear down and we become susceptible to temptation. And so we need, we need the punchy, practical words of James. Like we need James to stir us and provoke us. Like so often when we get worn down, we start to compromise, right? We start to compromise. We start to live for less than the glory of God. And so we need James to come in and shake us out of our stupor and remind us of what is important and what is true and what is real. We need the punchy, practical words of James to provoke in us repentance and humility. But listen, let's, let's see on the other side of this. James is not some cranky pastor just heaping shame on us. No, James is calling us to something beautiful. Stand faithful to God and not the world. And what does that mean? It means joy in the midst of trials. It means using our mouths to bless and to, to build up, not tear down. Rather than showing favoritism to people, it means loving and serving them. Rather than being fake and phony, it means actually loving and living out works of righteousness that glorify God and they're for the good of other people. It means using our time and our resources 
and our energy towards those things that are good and true and beautiful. It means hearts full of humility and peace and gentleness and love and mercy. It means living with this abiding hope, this overriding hope that Jesus is coming back. Like, this is what we're after, church. This is what James calls us to. Life in Jesus, a life of faithfulness. And so as we go through this series, as we receive what God's word has for us. Yes, there's going to be confrontation. James pulls no punches. Yes, there is going to be strong correction. Yes, there's going to be rebuke, and we are all going to face it. I'm going to face it. You're going to face it. We're all going to face it. But if we humble ourselves, as James tells us, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, there's so much grace, so much life for us. And so let's receive what the Lord has from us from this timeless and timely letter. Amen? Let's pray.